Okay, we, uh, we're we on the last chapter of Habakkuk. And, uh, yeah, I know. I might ask you guys a question. I might ask you guys a question about this. This was Habakkuk 2, 5 to 3, 2, and now on 3, 13. Was I not here? Uh, Did I miss something? Oh, that's 3 to 19. I bet that was my little finger that caught that up oh, there. Okay. See, I'm doing both hands now, and, and you know, rather than going like this, I'm using trying to use all oh, fingers. Okay. And I'll tell you what happens: that one somehow probably came over here, and I had a, a number, you know, going down. My numbers are really bad. Yeah. So no, no telling what else you might find in there. But it's three to nineteen. It's three to nineteen. Now, my question is, as we come down to the end of this... We don't have any answers. Oh, I bet you guys have the answers. You guys have the answers. Because the answer is right here. But this this book should be really applicable. Uh, something that we can apply to our own lives. I mean, everything is in Scripture. You ever notice that? But there's things in our lives that come up that are really difficult and, and challenging. Everybody knows that. But um, sometimes some people have to go through things even more than others. But at times, but um, as you look at this, I think it can really give a lot of answers to whatever is going on in our life at any time, no matter what it is. I think it's a great book to turn to. Um, now, the question I'm going to ask you is: As Habakkuk had questions, and he got answers from God. Um, if somebody were to ask you, well, what about that that book of tobacco? What is that all about? How, how would uh, how would you guys reply? Hey, anybody want to uh, put out on that? How can you outline Habakkuk in a in a real short, quick few moments of really what that's about? How did it start off, and how does it end? Anybody want to share that? Yeah, I've got a question. They got an answer. You didn't want. <laughs> that was pretty quick. <laughs> Well, and then he was happy about it. Yeah, then he became satisfied. His name is something about embracing God, so I think he was learning how to embrace God. Okay, that's pretty good. That's that's good to remember as we study his name because uh, we we see him. He he um, he knows God, but as it progresses, you notice that he seems to know God even more. Um. He was asking questions. God, why, why are you not listening to me? Uh, in a sense, uh, why is there so much silence here from heaven when all this is going on and and uh, our our nation is is going down the tubes and uh, you're not doing anything? And then God says, "Well, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to bring on the Chaldeans and I'm going to punish you." And uh, of course, then another question comes up. Okay, uh, you're going to do something, but Lord. How can you use a more wicked people than we are? And we get the answer on that one too. Um, we're not as bad as they are, um, but the thing is, he's a righteous God. And Habakkuk posed these questions, and you remember that it's kind of like he got on his watchtower and he cried upon God and he waited for God to answer him. And uh, there again, he gets the answer. Barb, you got something back there? Well, I just wanted to comment. You know, in, in the short few years that I've been a Christian, this, I'm on my fourth time through the Bible now, but this quickly became one of my favorite books because it's just, it's an ongoing conversation, an ongoing prayer you have with God, and that's how you build relationships through conversations and being honest and burying your soul, and that's what you're doing there, mm-hmm. and that should be an example for us today, too. Well, you, you put a really good summary on that. It really did. Um, this is us, and we ask God. You know, we ask Him why. Uh, sometimes uh, we don't really know why, uh, but He's His answer is is always there. Um, the thing is, I think Habakkuk, as he waited for God to answer him, he, I think it's almost like he finally gets to a point where he he gives up on what he doesn't know. And he starts remembering what he does know. And he addressed God as a holy God. Uh, he saw Him. 
in, in a way that he knew he was. Um, wait a minute. He's thinking, well, my God is an eternal God. He's eternal. Uh, he's holy. He's righteous. He does punish sin. He will punish sin. He will always do that. He never does wrong. He always does right. So we know those things. That's a good place to really start uh, on our thinking. And uh, so that's what's going on in his mind. And I think once we see ourselves establishing, okay, I don't know this, what God is doing, but I do know I can cope with this, what I, I know about him. I don't know the events that's going on around in my life, but um, I know that God deals with everything. And He's going to deal with the Chaldeans come here but because He deals with sin. But He's going to have to deal with them too. And you'll notice in that prayer that He started off with, as we saw in uh, oh, verse 1 and then verse 2 is where we cut off last week, right at the end of it, in wrath, remember mercy. Okay, you're going to bring on your punishment. You're going to bring on your wrath. Remember mercy, because you are a God of mercy. And you've always shown it anyway. And he's asking something that God is going to do anyway. God has a God of promise. But he says, remember mercy. That's a good thing to be saying. This is a great prayer here. God, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why you let Israel go the way that they have. I don't understand why you bring the Chaldeans to judge them. And uh, then you're going to wait to judge the Chaldeans. It's going to be a little while, and I don't understand why that is, but I know one thing. You're the God that is righteous. You're the God that is eternal. You're the God who never makes a mistake. You're right in everything that you do. I know you hate sin, and I know that you'll never do anything wrong. So whatever you're doing, I praise you anyhow. And I, I have this title up here, Praising God No Matter What, uh, kind of sums up the, the last part of this chapter 3 is, and as he puts forth his great prayer and it goes to this crescendo. You start looking at his position and he's standing in the midst of, uh, I think, a terrible dilemma. He knows what God is going to do. God will do it. He knows that. And, and he's coping with that. And he can't rectify all this, these parts. It's like a puzzle, and you know he can't put all this together in his mind. But he knows that God is the one that made the puzzle. God is right. So he's caught in this dilemma, uh, and he's not asking for deliverance. As we look in this, he's not saying that, "Hey, make this easy for me." We don't even see that. He doesn't pray that God would spare Israel in this. We don't see that. Uh, he doesn't even pray that there be no victory for the Chaldeans. At least they wouldn't win. Uh, and he doesn't pray these things just for uh, whatever he can he can get out of it. You know, it's it's he knows that God must judge. But what he does pray is the fact that God will do His work, and he knows that. And so when we look at the problems around us. And as Barb was relating that there, when those things come, and each one of us have our own battles and struggles, and when those things come around in our lives and all around in the world and the political realm and, and the whole theater, everything that it involves, it's almost like a back of saying this, and this is kind of a, an idea for us to get, hey, uh, what I really care about is whatever happens, I don't really I don't worry about myself. I don't worry about anything else than God be glorified. That's where he's moving to in this chapter 3. Because he thinks about God's glory. And once we get that thought, now we are putting ourselves aside. We're focusing on him. And so Habakkuk is starting to get the right perspective as this thing moves along. So it's not the circumstances... Uh, in the world around him that he is counting on, uh, they were bleak, unbelievably bleak. And but the thing is, is that he wants to see God receive the glory that is doing, and that is an amazing thought. Knowing what can happen, 
And he's going to lose family, friends. He's going to see death right in front of him. He's, go- he's going to see some of the worst things imaginable as the enemy comes in and does its kill. And uh, so he's experiencing, uh, he's going to experience this as it comes along. But he says, remember mercy. You want to know something? God always does. He always remembers mercy. Uh, you know, we have nothing to offer Him. If we don't have anything to offer Him, there is not anything that we can commend ourselves to Him other than to say, God, whatever You do, may You get the glory. May You act like whoever You are, which You will, and put a little mercy with Your judgment, which is a proper way to put it. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your truth and what a truthful book it is. The whole Bible and this particular little book, that's quite a blessing. And it can definitely become one of the favorites of all of us as we see it's real. And when we see the reality of the fact that things don't go the way that we would like it, or the way that it should, the way that it can glorify God and the idea that we have in mind. Uh, We know that You're working Your great work. You're doing that always, constantly. And as we tune in with You in prayer, individually and even as we pray here now, that we would desire to see Your will be done, that You be glorified. And You know those things that we deal with You will take care of those. And it's in your time. And there are a lot of reasons why it's not in the way that we'd like or in the timing, but we know that uh, you have the best interest for us in mind when it's all said and done. And, of course, really it's all about you anyway. So as we look at this passage, may we get a clearer understanding of who you are since that's really about what this book is about. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll start off with the glory of God. That's not a bad place to start, right? Uh, as Habakkuk has just said, what we just uh, talked about there in wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from His hand and there is the hiding of His power. We'll stop there for a moment. Um, the word for God, God comes from Teman, is Eloah, and it means God the Holy One. God the Holy One. It's interesting, I think Habakkuk has mentioned that before over in chapter 1, verse 12, when he came to his second question, but he started it off with this, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And we think of Holy, we think of the transcendent, separate one, uh, the one who is absolutely pure, without sin, absolutely holy. And this is kind of the spirit of the book here. I think he knows that he's a holy God, and it's good to be reminded of that. Uh, so he was in a, a bit of perplexity and frustration in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. Uh, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? And then in verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on iniquity. Therefore, God, how can you use the Chaldeans and even more evil people? Um, there he was addressing the Holy One. So what we have here is God the Holy One coming from Teman and then also Paran. Um, geographically, you can put them in an area, let's say uh, one of them, I think uh, Teman is an Edom. And that was one of the enemies that Israel had uh, to fight as they had uh, were early in their uh, years. Um, it's a mountainous area, Paran is, west of Edom. Uh, around the Sinai Peninsula, you also have, um, uh, what was it, Teman? You have Teman and Paran. And a lot of this uh, chapter is going to be showing how God delivered his people, maybe at different times, but he really 
concentrates on the Egyptian delivery, for one thing. Just remember that. You know, remember what God did then. In the Psalms, you'll see that quite frequently um, about what God has done in His history for for His people. And this is what the first thing that Habakkuk is doing here as he is putting together this song and being inspired by God. He's remembering what God has done in the past. That's the first point that we have here. And he starts talking about the glory. Okay, he's coming from, he's picturing God in all his glory, in all his power, being manifested to the whole nation of Israel, who were delivered, let's say, from Egypt. You know, if you go back and look in the past, that would be one place where they would draw from. Uh, you, you see great glory and power there. Uh, of course, they received the law at, at Mount Sinai. If you look in Deuteronomy 33 2. Blessing of Moses says in verse one, just before he died, and he said, "The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of ten thousand holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them." <laughs> I mean, when you think of Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, you think of the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets and the majestic powerful display that was put on uh, for this uh, about this glorious God as the law was about to be delivered. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting, the flashing lightning. Now there are people, if they come from the West Coast, they don't know too much about our lightning that we have here in the Midwest. And sometimes we get some spectacular displays of lightning in, in our thunderstorms. Do you remember those? <laughs> we had them not too long ago, about a week ago, right? And but if you happen to be outside and you see one of those things, I think Johnny saw one of those coming out of the was it the west? It ran across the sky and you were blown away by it. That was just what a week ago, two weeks ago, something like that. It, and it was it's quite quite a display. And not every place gets that. The Midwest is famous for that those lightning displays. It can light up the sky brighter than what the sun or the moon can do. Of course, the moon doesn't. It's using the sun, right? But, I mean, that's, you know, in a dark sky like that and that brightness comes out. Well, anyway, he's using that uh, metaphor there. Flashing lightning. Uh, the, the glory, the power of it that's, that's being seen in that. Uh, so, you know, they were, as they were being delivered, uh, what a powerful, glorious God. Uh, and so, what God and His Holy Spirit is telling Habakkuk as he writes this down is, hey, remember that your God is the same God that delivered your people. He's the same God. Remember that. Look where He came from. Teman and Paran. He took you out of Egypt. Took you out of slavery. Took you out of bondage. He was, uh, he was always there. He delivered you. What a great God. So he starts off with that. God comes from there. The Holy One from Mount Paran. And then he says, Selah. And a lot of discussion on what that is, and then you come to find out people always say, but we're not for sure. <laughs> but a little mystery, but uh, some will say that that means to, uh, to, uh, to pause. You have a song going, and so it's to pause, meditate, think on this. That makes pretty good sense. I kind of like that. One guy said it means to jam. And I like that too. It means the instruments go ahead and then, you know, when, you, when you're hearing instruments, then it allows you to think, to meditate upon what, what is to come or, or what has been. And so, uh, you know, that, that pause can fit in there. I think, do we meditate upon who God is and what He's done? Do we think about His blessings? That's one of the best things we can do to get ourselves in the right perspective. Because now we're, we're looking at the way that... We want to look at it the way that God looks. Not the way we look at it, but the way that God looks at it. So we just think about those blessings, what He's done in the past. And so He's worshiping here, and the extent of this worship is about the deliverance. And He's considering what God has done. The glory, the splendor covers the heavens. The glory of this 
covers the, the heavens. There, there was a song, there was a canopy of praise that came from all the Israelites at, uh, at Sinai for what God had done. And we're, we're thinking of this, the splendor that covers the heavens, this glory, the earth is full of His praise, His radiance, and rays flashing, and all oh, the power. And you can go back to Exodus and you think of the time when Moses said, show me your glory. Well, God showed some of His glory. Um, we know that uh, He's such a holy God if He would have seen it all, He would not have lived. Nobody can live seeing all of that brightness and glory of great majesty of God all at that one time. There was later the Solomon's Temple and of course, people couldn't go in there unless it was the high priest and once a year. But we know that uh, when it was dedicated, it filled. Uh, there was a filling of that holy place there. The whole temple, people just fell and, and worshipped there. And you think of the New Testament where God's glory was put on display, the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, where you have um, uh, Jesus uh, putting on a little bit of His display of the glory. Uh, it's like He just peel back his flesh a little bit and let them see who he was. Of course, Peter wanted to stay there. Can't blame him. What a what a scene that must have been. And we know that um, in John 1, Christ uh, is God in flesh. And the glory was walking amongst them. He's the express image of God, is he not? The very stamp of God. Um, verse 4 says, "...and His brightness was as the light." His radiance is like the sunlight. His radiance, uh, the brightness of God, the holiness of God is so great. His power is so inexplicable. You can imagine when Moses had walked down that mountain and being in the presence of God in some way, he had to cover his face because of the glory of God was on him. It shone like a mirror. He had seen God in 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 a sense. And uh, I just I can't imagine that. You know, the, the veil had to be put on him. Uh, what a what a sight! So we're talking about real glory, real power. Okay, my Bible says he had horns coming out of his hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I've got he has rays flashing yeah. from his hand. Um, and, and earlier we were talking about the lightning that was coming out. Um, there and probably a translation for us to be able to understand a little bit better is you have this uh, this radiance. It's just all coming out from everywhere and just exploding and going everything. I think the okay. So they're talking about musical instruments in a sense. Not points like well, the power. No. Represented the power, right? Yeah. Um, talking about the and there he veiled his power. So the horns are probably a reflection of the power. Yeah, where was that? Um, and I think a lot of it relate the giving of the law at that time from at Mount Sinai. Uh, Deuteronomy 33.2, we just read that earlier. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. Um, here we have what? He has rays. And my version says rays. And it, it's probably better understood. King James probably has rays. or uh, Not rays. Uh, horns. horns, right? Yeah. Uh, right after that, it talks about his power. Right. And you said before, you know, that... that yeah, and this is a show. This is a show, a display of his great glory, his great power, and it's emitting in all directions. I think as as one had related that too. So his power is everywhere. It's universal. It's all embracing, encompassing. And it's interesting too, right? At the uh, he has rays flashing from his hands coming out. There, there is the hiding of his. Somebody even said, uh, "There's another commentary." Anyway, there. Um, I'm not going to say anything. Wrong. There is the hiding of his power. There is the hiding of his power. That's interesting. He shows his great power, but there's a hiding of his power. 
And we ought to be glad that a lot of his power is hidden. Now we got his mind yeah, and a lot of this is metaphorical, and um, there's personification here, um, and he's using some, some things here that he's trying to put into you know a human understanding. And believe me, a lot of different ideas on, on with commentaries on some of this, and. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, go to yeah. Go to Psalm 104. One hundred four, verse two. Verse two. Talking about God here. He's in verse one. He's clothed with splendor, uh, splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Covering yourself with light as with a cloak. It's quite an ineffable light. It's the hiding place of God's majesty. And the psalmist says here, he clothed himself with light as a garment. That's a brilliant light. Um, and of course, you can imagine the, the very essence of God. Uh, what a beautiful description that is happening here. And so, this light is where... God's majesty is, and it's it's in Him. And of course, there's the there's the other sense of He doesn't. It's almost like He displays to us only so much as as He did Moses. So there's different ways of kind of viewing that, but I think they all can go together. Of course, we know that God, God is light, right? And so, then he starts getting into some judgment. And he talks about pestilence and plague in verse 5. Um, most of this that we're going to see is his judgment upon other nations. But you can also see that there were some things that he had to deal with Israel. There was pestilence and plague with them out in the wilderness at um, at one time when he put a punishment on them. They murmured against Moses. They murmured against God. And of course, what happened? They were struck with a plague. And that means pestilence and plagues and diseases are what God uses to bring on punishment. So he's in control. But it's also, I think, applying even more so to Egypt uh, and the plagues. You can think of the plagues that were brought on there, and that's really easy to think of. But he's just showing God is so powerful, He will bring that on to uh, any of the disobedient, any people that uh, are not desiring to do His will. Verse 6 and 7, you see more of His power. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So it's like God is looking and He looks at the nations and He drives them away. He destroys them with like one look and He starts mentioning mountains and hills trembling. And what He does, it's, it's almost like when you think of mountains and hills, you think of stability there, right? Perpetual. They're, they're always there. Stable and permanent. And when you look at great nations, you think, well, nothing can bring them down. Well, we've seen all the nations come down uh, eventually anyway. But God is saying here, even the symbols here of nature, and, and when you think of mountains, hills, they're collapsing. God is totally ruling over them. What he's saying is God will move. God will crumble anything that is in his way. It's not necessarily saying he's taking down the mountains, but he's saying he is in control of everything, anything that comes in his way. And I think here he's using these as symbols of of mankind and saying them in in sweeping terms that uh, God controls history. God has put down the nations and God will do it. And, of course, His people, His remnant, will be victorious as He goes through all this. Uh, look in Exodus fifteen fourteen. It's a song of Moses. Exodus 
song. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. And he mentions, mentions Edom and Moab and Canaan. These are all the different nations that were enemies against God and they were enemies against Israel. And God did judgments on all of these and the people trembled. That's how powerful God is as He takes these great nations and He controls them. All things. Whether they're in heaven, earth, hell, they're all subdued by God. So, sovereignty, the power of God. That's what Habakkuk is establishing here. Here's where we get our mindset right. Okay. Brings out the splendor, the majesty, the, you know, the flashing rays from his hand and uh, all the power that he has and controlling all the nations of the world. So anything that's going on, we know he's controlling, right? Well, when you get that in perspective, it kind of helps, doesn't it? Now all of a sudden, those little things that we're dealing with that seem so big are kind of diminishing. Now, 8 through 15 is going to deal with the judgment of God, as if we haven't seen it already, but <laughs> he gets into some more detail, used some graphic language. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Now, he uses some natural elements. You know, he's used mountains and hills. Did the Lord's rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses or your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. Okay, let's pause. You have Selah there? <laughs> horses, chariots, bow, rod. Uh, picture of uh, an archer. His bow is out of his sheath, out of his holster. It's, um, I think, um, yeah, in, in verse 9, your bow was made bare. That means it, it came out of a sheath. It, now it's out there. Now it's ready. Uh, the Lord is ready to, uh, his bow is unbarred. He's vigilant. He's ready. He's ready to attack. A tremendous picture of God being the warrior uh, in judging. Of course, he uses different things to judge people. He uses weather. You know, he uses tornadoes. He uses hurricanes. Uh, he uses armies, different nations. Um, he uses whatever that he wants, but he's ready to shoot the arrow of his judgment against, the, of course, the Babylonians. We know that God says, I'll take care of them. I'm going to use them, but I'm, then I'm going to take care of them too in that I'm going to judge them. <laughs> Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The mountains quaking. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Verse 11 is kind of interesting there. The sun and the moon... And they stood in their places. Kind of reminds me of uh, back at the time of Joshua. The day the earth stood still. Uh, go back there. Joshua 10, 12-14. Using a lot of imagery here, isn't he? But there's things he's done in the, in, his, in the history. He is the God of history. Boy, he is a God of wrath, is he not? Totally sovereign. And this is what Habakkuk is bringing forth. Very, very graphic song. Boy, this is a heavy song, isn't it? All right, Nick and Andor, you guys put this thing together in a week and get this this chapter we'll be singing. <laughs> That'd be a heavy assignment, wouldn't it? Make sure we get a seat. <laughs> Just use your Bible, right? right? <laughs> Alright, what's happening in Joshua here? Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ahilon. So the moon stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. 
Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And I know you're going to ask that one. And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Hmm. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Uh, they needed that that sun standing still where they could go ahead and uh, defeat the enemies there. And uh, God used all that. And uh, of course that actually happened. Um, God gave people, His people victory over the Amorites. Uh, there's certainly uh, a light that is more brilliant than the moon, isn't there? What's that? Yeah, the sun. And then they went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. God's arrows. Spear. Graphic. Picture. It's painting uh, here. Glittering. Judgment. Blasting out of the heavens, more brilliant than the moon and the sun. A tremendous description of God and His power. Boy, if people could understand how powerful this God is. He is totally controlling over His creation, isn't He? It says um, in 12, in indignation, you that's anger, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. He's a holy God. They weren't. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Stop there for a moment. Now, these people are wanting to destroy God's people, and God punishes these people. God is a God of history. He defeats His foes, and He's trampling over them. He marches through the earth. He tramples the nations. And he says, you went forth for the salvation of your people. There's a remnant always who he protects and keeps. And it's interesting, for the salvation of your anointed. Salvation there is related to the word Yeshua. And anointed is a word that's related to Mashiach or Christ. And of course, he's the ultimate anointed. And he's the ultimate Savior. And that's so, so he's got to save these people to get to the Messiah, doesn't he? Save that line. Go back to the flood. If he wouldn't have kept eight people, then he would have destroyed all people. But he decided to keep, you know, that, and he's always had that line. There it is as it's marching forward. And so he's going to do it for his promises and his, uh, his people. So there we go. God has done this all the way through. And, uh, you know, you think of some of the battles that he's done uh, through different, different people. Uh, pretty, pretty powerful. It says in verse 13, You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. To lay him open. I mean, there is... Um, if you put this in the movies, it probably had to be rated R for the violence and the blood and the gore. You can imagine all the, the bloodshed that, uh, that is out of this. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation would like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Nothing can stop God. It's, uh, verse 15, you trampled on the sea with your horses. And maybe he's going back to the Red Sea here. Uh, he's definitely over nature, and not even the sea itself, whatever that is. It cannot keep God from marching through it, right through the sea. He can do it. Of course, you know you have to think of the Red Sea, whether that is meant specifically there or not. Many of them say it is, but we know that. Well, there's one time in history where he did that literally. What he, you know, the Red Sea was nothing to him. How he, you know, he split that and then he drowned the uh, the Egyptians in it. Uh, but he's building it up. He's building all this up. And uh, this does not lessen the concept of God at all, does it, as we look at this power. But yeah, this 
if you were to see the images coming out of this and the way that it's put by Habakkuk as he's inspired by God's Spirit, this is incredible. I, I wish I could emphasize these words enough to where it would make you feel what what was really going to happen and has happened. A lot of this is historical, but it's going to happen to, to uh, the Babylonians. God's always been faithful. Has He ever proven to be unfaithful? We can stand today. We can step back from all those things that happen in human life. Step back, and it doesn't matter how unbelievable perplexity is in our lives. It doesn't matter how puzzled we are. The confusing dilemma that we have and we can say, I, I don't understand this problem. But I do understand this. I understand that God is faithful. That is where Habakkuk is arriving to. Now, well, more than being faithful, that maybe what we see is bad for the purpose. And, and, and he's just not letting a dread or whatever else come from. There's a purpose to everything he's been doing. And like I say, you know, some we see it, we don't see it as a good purpose. We don't think so, but that's not true. Because it's all for the purpose. There's a purpose that's always wrong and everything he's done. He's never just what things exist for not him not being about something about it. That makes you want to get a, a real high view of God. You can go, wow, this is my father. <laughs> I've got my grandparents about the hair on their head and stuff like that. And so they say, it's so insignificant that like, the hairs of your head that fall off that we would shove off their shoulders. It's about a thought. Even that, he knows that about us. You know, those are all the things. So none of that's not. Here's so much in those little details, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. But yet, it's still not about us, is it? And here's a backup. After saying that, you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters, and now he's thinking, okay, you know, he's, he's going to. He's going to take care of the Babylonians, but yet they have to come here first. And God's not changing that. So verse 16, we shift gears for a moment. We sing the power of God. And if you take the power of God literally, that He is so powerful, that just using some of this poetry here in this song, <laughs> here we go. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place, I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. He... uh, yeah, he knows God. And he has the right perspective. But the fear of God is where you start getting that wisdom. And he fears God. He trembles because he knows how powerful he is. What does it say in Proverbs 9 10? You guys know that one? And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. When he got the fear, when he really saw what this was about, this is where he really has another gear that he's been shifted into about knowing God. Here's how he works. Yes, it's going to come. Here's the fact. Here's the reality. And I'm scared. Was he sinning in that? Not at all. He understood perfectly what God was doing. Now, he he, he trembles. He knows he's going to lose his house, probably. He's going to lose his family. He's going to lose his land. He's going to lose his friends. He's going to lose people that he knew very well, neighbors all around him. They're going to be carted off. He's going to see people die right in front of him. He's going to see little children Grandchildren, children, neighbors, little kids, heads being whacked off, who knows what all. 
wholesale slaughter of women and children and old people. That's the way that they did. They didn't care how they did it. They loved. They enjoyed doing that. Babylonians did. The Chaldeans. Very good point. Isn't that interesting? From that same area. They are crucifying Christians. I see it seems like on Facebook every time I put it up, somebody else has died because they were a Christian and they were crucified or burned. Have you seen some of those? It's just, I can't even stand to watch them. I just, I know that happens. And I know that, uh, what if it happened here? Yeah, this is real. This is real. But you know, I don't think there's any wonder that, that he trembled. I think I would tremble too. And that's the whole point. I, I think we know God is a wonderful God, but we need to be fearing Him because that's how powerful that He is. That makes us put things into perspective a little bit more. Makes us want to go after Him a little bit more, doesn't it? But this is the humanist though. I mean, this is, this is right. He, he was scared. He doesn't have any philosophical doubts anymore. <laughs> He's not asking God some kind of philosophical questions. They're absolutely answered. I mean, what else is he going to hear? He needed to hear what he needed to hear, and he he believes it. And now he's fearing God. He, uh, wow, this this is really really amazing. I, I uh, I'm amazed that he's still standing. You know, the only thing left is fear. He's trembling. Spirit is willing, but the Flesh is weak. Go to Malachi 3.16. This is really good. First, Malachi is easy to find. Last book in the Old Testament. Does that help? Just for Matthew. <laughs> and this is about fearing God. Now look at this. This is really good. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Malachi 3.16. 3.16. It's not John 3.16, but it's Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. You know, I like that. It's kind of interesting. God's people get together. They're speaking with each other. They are ones who fear God. They're believers. They get together and they start talking with each other. And they might be talking about certain things. Maybe things we're talking about. And look at this. I like this too. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. You know, He always hears this. And He hearkened. That's right. I, I, I saw that in a commentary. He used the word hearkened. Uh, he, he paid attention. He hearkened to it. He heard it. He knew what they were talking about. And so He just kind of intervenes in their little conversation here. <laughs> and a book of remembrance was written before Him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. Now, it's not like He comes right down and plants Himself in front of there, but He's saying they will be mine. Look at this. A book of remembrance. This book was written long before the battles ever happened, long before the foundation of the world. The book of remembrance. And it's for the ones who fear Him. And it says in 17, this is the beauty of it, guys, right here. If you've been kind of distressed over the passage that we just dealt with, look at this. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man who spares his own son who serves him. So you will again be distinguished between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So draws it right down the line. He says, The ones who feared the Lord. They were the ones God pays attention to. And He says, they're written in the book of remembrance. They're mine. I own them. (laughs) We are His and He is ours. That, that's the beauty of all this. They weren't, you know, there they are. They're probably asking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to us or God? Now, these are people that have come out after uh, Babylon and there's 
and the seventy year captivity and they're in back in their homeland and they're being established, but um, God knows what they're doing, knows what they need. A book of remembrance. That that's mercy with wrath. Okay, but I suppose the wrath of God has I happened. Never knew about that book. What's that? I suppose those people, those people that feared the Lord and spoke to one another, I don't guess they ever knew about that book of remembrance. They just kind of did what they did and God did what He did and one day in eternity... <laughs> wow! It's a, it might be like a, the, the book of life. Uh, you do see something about that written in, in Exodus and, and in the Psalms and, and in Daniel. Um so, you know, there was some kind of uh, a reward for the future, and they knew that. Um, but that's what the Lord ever does. He will remind us of who He is. Like I said, I don't have a book of remembrance. Yeah. But like I say, this is the book of, you know, the Scripture is the book of remembrance for us. So, yeah, it's a reminder. Like I said, I, think, I kind of look at it as almost like a reminder of all the things that they want to be heard. Yep. Well, anyway, God always has a remnant. Book of Remembrance and uh, all believers in it. Now, there's a paradox. It's interesting. That in Philippians 4, 4, it says, Rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. So how often do we rejoice? All the time. And then you look in Romans chapter 9, verse 2. And you say, well, how can we do that when... Look, look at Paul. Remember how he rejoiced all the time? And he says in verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. <laughs> and he's, he's the same guy that tells us in Philippians to rejoice. He tells us in Colossians to rejoice. As a matter of fact, you can just turn anywhere in the New Testament and probably put your finger...